Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories. Today I had the opportunity to visit with Jim Brinkman. Jim is a third generation rancher on the Pitzer Ranch. And just a little background on the Pitzer Ranch really quick. It was founded by Jim's grandfather in 1946. So it's pretty cool that it's been able to stay in the family and that Jim is able to manage that now. I had a lot of fun talking to him and I hope you enjoy. much for agreeing to visit with me for a minute i really appreciate it yeah it will have us a good little talk here yeah so i know that you guys are famous for your horse program but i was wondering at first if you could tell us a little bit about your cow outfit and you still run cattle too right yeah yeah we've uh oh we're here in the sand hills of nebraska and, and it's cow country and so we we run uh, a commercial angus herd and, and uh basically uh i mean it's just a pretty basic commercial herd we sell our calves usually usually around weaning time or we'll background them for a little while and, and then sell them um got a really good sale barn here in erickson it's three miles uh from the ranch and uh i suppose they sell i I don't know, 150,000 a year or something like that. It's probably one of the top three or four sale barns in the state. So it's a real good market and, uh, and, uh, things are pretty convenient right here. Yeah. We're the 13th least populated county in the lower 48 states. Um, there's about 800 people in this county, uh, you know, the high school, I don't know, they play six-man football. I mean, I think the average class size over there might be eight, ten kids. Um, and, uh, you know, the sale barn will sell 150,000 head of cattle. So I guess that kind of explains what the country's like around here. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a couple big feed yards here in the county that are over 100,000 head. And, and uh, so it's it's just cattle country. I also, I read on your website that, when your grandpa started the Pitzer Ranch, that he started it by renting uh, grass and taking in cows. I was just wondering, like, at what point did he change his mind and start focusing on the horses? Um, well, so so he grew up, he was born about 19, 10, 11, right in there. And his dad was a, uh, uh, what would I call it, a traveling horse trader. Um, in those days, they had big central markets like Omaha, Sioux City, Oklahoma City, places like that is where the big sale barns were. And uh, anyway, his dad would take take the boys. He had three, two brothers, so there's three brothers. And they would uh, take off across country. And his dad would go around all the little farmsteads and stuff and buy the the mule and the milk cow and the horse and everything else. And the boys would follow with the herd and drive the herd and then they would go to one of those central markets and camp out for a month or two and trade everything off and buy a bunch of other stuff and then go back through the country 
and uh, traded to the farmsteads that they that they <laughs> went to on the way through. And uh, so that's, that's the way he grew cool. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. You know, in the 20s and 30s, through that stuff. That's the way they made their living. And so that's the way uh, he grew up. Um, consequently, uh, oh, he went to college and got a degree and played football for the University of Nebraska. Um, went to work for a uh, Swift Pack company. Uh, it was a seat packing company. And uh, basically went broke there working for wages. As he said, he didn't like it. So he uh, came out here and uh, rented some land and, and uh, started running cattle and horses. Basically, he uh, traded horses to create that cash flow and make a living. And and the cattle, uh, he used that income to buy land and uh, and started to build a ranch. And so that's the way this that's the way this ranch started. Um, the cattle paid the the real estate bills and the and the horses made the living. <laughs> that's pretty and cool. So we kind of we kind of do the same thing yet, I guess, in a way. We maybe switched a little more to where the horses pay a bigger share of it, but uh, but uh, that's that's the way this place started. Was it something that you always wanted to be involved in? Um, I would say yes. Uh, you know, you also are a product of your environment. I mean. Uh, uh, we live in ranch country, and we do ranch stuff. And I mean, I, I didn't really know any any better. You kind of just grow up doing that. I mean, um, you know, you're seven, eight years old, and you're bombing around on your pony out here because there isn't, <laughs> there isn't like there's anything else to do. I mean, I never played baseball or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, we live out here in the country, so you you'd uh, maybe take your pony out on the out on the meadow and go down to the fishing pond and tie him to a tree and go fishing for a while and then he rode back. Uh or or else you <laughs> or you took your rope out and, and tortured some poor calf out in the hills that you found <laughs> and chased him around till you caught him or something just for fun. <laughs> so um yeah. Anyway that's that's uh all I ever did. Neat. would you say that your grandpa was one of the people that you learned the most from or how did you get educated to the point that you could do what you're doing now? Well, it, it, it as they say, it kind of takes a village. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, my granddad, of course, was uh, very influential, influ- influential, and gave me the opportunity. Um, but we were we were showing a lot of horses in those days and like the year I was uh, 13, I think we went to 80 horse shows that summer. And, uh, wow. I mean, we traveled all over from Minnesota to Jackson hole, Wyoming to Fort Worth and, sh- and, uh, showed horses and I was long showing horses and he just, he put me in the youth classes and put me in the open classes. And, uh, so, I mean, yes, he gave me a lot of opportunity, and and he taught me a lot. But I mean, the guys I was running with, I, I was it was a great time. Um, I mean, I had had Sonny Jim Orr and Billy Allen and Matlock Rose and Bob Loomis, and those were the kind of guys. Leroy Webb, those are the guys that that I was competing with every weekend. And uh, and you know, just a kid. I mean, you just have trouble. You go ask one of them, and they were. Yeah. I mean, most all of them guys are in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, maybe all of them are. But I mean, they uh, 
so I had, I had, oh, and I forgot, oh, uh, and Paul Tierney, um, oh, he won the all around at the NFR probably in, I mean, the, the all around cowboy the world about 77. I think he might have been the calf roping champion there, 75 or something. He was here in the wintertime because we had a barn right here and he lived fairly local to us. So we practiced all the time together. And, uh, so I, I got to, be around a really good set of guys. Then, yeah. I mean, there was there was somebody that was an expert, and and kind of like an expert right at the top. So it was it was good. It'd be pretty cool to be surrounded by that many different people who could be influential in a bunch of different areas like that. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, <laughs> I, I never really ran into a problem that one of them didn't know how to solve. You know, I'd have a have a horse that switched his tail and go ask Matlock how to keep him from doing it. You know I mean? It just, it, uh, <laughs> there was, there was always somebody that knew. Yeah. yeah. What would you say the biggest thing you learned from those guys was? If you can name one. Probably, you know, all those guys were great showmen and, and kind of at the top there. I mean, they want a lot of stuff and probably the biggest thing that you can learn across the whole group of them is that you, you work to your horse's strengths and uh, there's not a perfect trainer or a perfect horse and you just have to work toward their strengths. So you, you know, don't uh, just because some little thing goes wrong doesn't mean he's a bad horse. You, you need to figure out what event his strengths are going to fit him, you know, what where to fit him into the deal. Um, and and I would say that was the biggest thing that they were they were all really good at that. They would uh, find the the spot where that horse could shine, and then and then show him there to the to the best that they could, instead of mm-hmm. trying to make him into something he wasn't. I like that. Kind of like people. People all have different strengths. It makes sense that horses would all have different strengths too. Oh, very much so. And and you know today's modern way of looking at it, you you. Uh, you send your uh, horse off to uh, to the rain and trainer to go to the to the to the fraternity, and he flunks him because he's not right. And uh, but maybe he's just uh, maybe he's a little too cowy <laughs> for that, and he needs to go to the cut fraternity instead. <laughs> yeah. Those guys in those days they were a little better about about uh, they were more all around trainers as a whole. They they did a little bit of everything, so they would just switch the horse into the events that they needed to go into. So when when you're trying to decide whether or not to show a horse, um, or I don't know, maybe you show all of them, I don't know, but what what kind of things do you look for in your horse when you decide, okay, I'm really going to invest the time and the effort into this one to really show it? And then, I don't know, can you talk about that process a little bit? Sure. Uh, so so first off, in kind of in the same thread we were in, it's form, form to function. You, you look at his his uh, his type and you know the way he's built and figure out what events he can fit and uh, and then of course to show one he needs to be an attractive horse um, and and that attractive will be different for different events uh, kind of what they look for so you try and find an attractive horse to fit that discipline and then that his body type fits it so that he can do it easily and 
and then you get on him and ride him around and see if he moves good. And it and it doesn't matter what discipline you're in. I don't care what it is. If he doesn't move good, he's not going to make it very well. I mean, he's just going to be average. The good ones really move good underneath of you. Movement's a very important thing. Do you focus more on the roping aspect with your horses, or do you try to get them into everything? Yeah, we, I mean, I like to rope, and we do too here at the ranch. And, and uh, you know, our, our basic mare herd and stuff, I mean, we, we've raised ranch horses forever since we started. And a, and a good ranch horse is is the type of a, he's built the right way to be a rope horse. Um, you know, I mean, a good ranch horse is kind of 15 hands or, you know, plus or minus a couple inches, and he weighs something. He probably weighs close to 1200 and that fits a good ranch horse he's physical enough to do a job and uh and that's the same kind of horse that we look for with the rope horse and uh and he needs to be fairly cowy so it it all kind of goes together that way so our horses have fit the roping um we've we mess around in the cow horse um got a horse on the road right now he won the derby this year and, and um i think he was maybe fifth or sixth in the in the cow horse fraternity you know last year or something like that that uh we messed with that um but but as a whole it's uh the the rodeo jackpot uh ranch horse type stuff um got a few of them showing in that ranch riding thing you know the new classes and uh, they do pretty well there yep and and we still show a few halter horses. Uh, you know, of course that was the way we started. But everybody in the '60s, when Two Eyed Jack was famous, you showed halter and pleasure because that's what everybody did. And and uh, and we still show some of them. I've got a young stud that we're standing now. That oh, I don't know. He got his halter points and his grands and all that kind of stuff. And we'll make him an AQH champion. We still try and make our studs if they're pretty enough to if they got enough shape. We'll try and make them an AQH champion and get their halter points. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Two-Eyed Jack, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about him for a minute, like the history of how the pitchers ended up with him and then the impact that he has had on your program. Well, of course, he's the basic. He's the, he's the whole base of our program, basically. Uh, Two-Eyed Jack has got a 119 AQHA champions, and I believe the closest horse to him has 57. That's all time in the quarter horse breed. Wow! Um, so he was a pretty dominant horse. Now he was a horse of the of the 60s and the 70s, basically. Um, you know, they had the Hancocks and the Pocos, and the Dock Bars were just barely starting in there about that time. Um, so uh, in in his group. Um, he was a little different horse. He was a he was a little more refined than some of them, and a little bigger than the others. And, and uh, so he he kind of fit the middle a little better. And so they were very popular at the time. Um, he himself was a uh, uh, a big strong horse. You know, stood about probably stood about fifteen two, and was heavy made, had a big gaskin, good foot bone, that kind of thing. He was really gentle. Um, he was a very good mover. He changed leads every stride. Just, just, uh, it was really easy for him physically. And, uh, and he was good minded. So that, that fit a lot of a different events when people buy those Colts, they could do a lot of different things on them. And, uh, uh, 
as far as the way he came here, uh, my granddad saw him go through a sale with his mother. At that time, the raining industry, actually a lot of the quarter horse industry was centered around Illinois, around Chicago. And uh, he was back in there someplace and saw him go through an auction for like 1500 and uh, didn't buy him. And then saw him as a yearling at a horse show. And they he rounded up a partner and uh, uh, Joe Lindholm. And the two of them bought this horse, bought him. And uh, they kept showing him and he won a lot. And then we bought out Joe about time. He was about a four or five year old, something like that. <clears throat> and uh, so he kept track of him. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he kept track of him from the time he was not baby. even a yearling until. Mm-hmm. Wow, yep. That's cool. Yep. And then he, uh, you know, we were at that time. Oh, let's say when when Jack was probably about a say maybe a five to a eight year old kind of in that range. Um, we were standing for like $500 stud fee um, and probably breeding 200, 300 mares to him. I mean, he, he bought a lot of, a lot of stuff around here. That horse paid for a lot of things. (laughs) And then um, when he got to where he was about 12, 14, we stood him at a thousand bucks and we were breeding closer to three or 400 a year. Or I think wow. the top he had three hundred or four hundred and thirty some mares one year, the kind of their top. Um, and and you know we're talking this is in the sixties and seventies. Like uh, I remember I was in high school in seventy seventy six, um, and we bought a new ranch pickup because I got to drive it a little bit. I thought it was cool, <laughs> but uh, it was a three quarter ton Chevy four wheel drive, and it cost seventy five hundred dollars in nineteen seventy six. So. A thousand dollar stud fee was quite a bit for a horse at that time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then to breed that many mares, he must have been something special for. Yep, for was, you to have that many. He was uh, kind of at the top of the top of the list right at that time, and we've kept an inbreed and as a uh, supposed to be. They say line breeding is a pre- nice way to say it, but it's all the same. Uh, we've <laughs> kept a line line bred herd. We're probably about 200, 200 and some of our mares are still uh, real tight bred, two-eyed jack bred horses. And then we outcross them onto, uh, oh, right now I've got a a couple uh, highbrow cats and a metallic cat and a and a first down dash and a wimpy's little step that we're using for outcrosses. And, uh, okay. And, um, and then we still keep about... About half of the studs will be line bred horses, and about half of them are out crosses. And we keep crossing the line bred ones back into each other. And as soon as it doesn't work, we throw them onto the outcross herd. And of course, as soon as you outcross them, it'll it'll cover up all the all the mistakes you're getting. And uh, and they're still you know that makes some really good horses. It's kind of like crossing a Hereford and an Angus. Uh, the the you get like 25 percent hybrid vigor. So a lot of those out outcross colts are they're pretty fancy because they're they're carrying that that outcross that that hybrid vigor that you get from the outcross they won't breed as true the inbred herd will breed true i mean you can go out here and ask me what uh, that mare is going to have and if she's one of the inbred mares i mean i can just about about 98 percent what what it'll be just really how tall, how tall it's going to be how heavy it's going to be how it's going to ride just the whole, it'll just like cookie cutter yeah. 
but uh, but also when you inbreed like that, you'll bring in some, you know, any bad traits you have will double up. So once in a while, you'll find something. And, and, uh, and of course, when you do that, you put them in the outcross herd or if it's a bad one, you just get rid of them, you know, if it's something that's actually bad. But, yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but that's the way breeds are formed. I mean, most all of the breeds um, eventually there was an inbred program that created a breed. That's how you establish type and, and uh, to make it different from the others. Is it, I feel like I might've uh, read it somewhere that that's kind of how two eyed Jack was bred was, was line bred like that. Is that correct? Or am I? No, no, he was, he was a, uh, he was a out of two D two. And basically uh, it was a four sixes mare. She was a, Hand, Hancock Gray Badger, and uh, okay. so he was a he. He actually was two. He was an outcross horse, and the fact that two D two was a was a little reining horse from back in uh, Illinois, and was uh, like two eyed Jack's full sister was the honor roll reining mare in the nation one year. I mean, little heavy made mare, real stoppy, uh, quick footed little reining horse type, and then the the old Hancock Gray Badger was a. Big rangy, and you know that's basically a, a cow horse on a running horse. Um, mm. So it was kind of a big rangy kind of a deal, and uh, okay. so Two Eye Jack was a total outcross deal, and he just the only difference between him was he just happened to be kind of a freak and bred true to form, and uh, where a lot of those that are bred like that, they they you know you kind of get the little tight one or you get the great big rangy one. You don't get the middle very often. Mm. Okay. But but then we did take him and inbreed, you know, inbred that line for a long time. Still are. Yeah. Is there is there a stud in your program that you have right now that you feel will be as beneficial to the horse industry as two I Jack was? That's a tough question. Um probably not. I know it's probably hard to even come close to that especially with as many champions that you said he's had and yeah i don't i don't think that, that i don't think we can i don't think the times will really even allow it right now you know the there's the horse business was a lot smaller at and you know when jack was here i mean number wise and and uh there wasn't uh the technology um the you know frozen semen ixy all those kind of things were not around so a horse would become pretty dominant um, um, nowadays it's so spread out I mean you can I just came back from Australia a couple of days ago and you know they're they're breeding to our horses down there you know I walked into a guy's place and he had a daughter dual ray there that he was I think he was breeding it to um, metallic rebel or something I mean and that's in Australia and we didn't have that type of thing back when Jack was around so it's going to be a lot harder now because it's just so um, easy for people to go everywhere and and get genetics. Just anywhere in the world, they can get genetics. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, th- I think it's more now. Now it's just you're going to embrace a type of a horse more so than than just one individual type. You know, one individual stud. Mm-hmm. When you yeah. when you look at your colts as far as confirmation, what are you what are you looking for in, in the good ones? 
Well, um, we still like to have a pretty head on one um, because that that's economic. That gets them sold. Um, even people that don't know anything about a horse look at one and they can just kind of look at his head and his eye and stuff and say that's a nice horse because, I don't know, it just seems to be natural for people to pick that out. Um, a nice head and neck. Uh, like I like a good throat latch, um, medium long kind of a neck, and uh, uh, relatively short back, good legs, withers. I'm all about withers. Got a wither. Can you um, can you talk really quick about? I know you're probably running out of time, um, but I'm just curious how you run how you run your mares and your studs. Uh, you run them out in the sand hills. Do you try to keep some of them in? We do both. Uh, we run about 400 mares here at the ranch of our own. And then we breed a, oh maybe 150 outside mares. Uh, we've turned. I think we have seven studs out in the hills right now with different bands of mares. <clears throat> um, about 25 mares to a band, and then uh, we usually just put a um, the next pasture we'll have a set of cows, and then we'll put a stud and then you know just kind of alternate them through and then we run about with the outside mares uh we, we've got five studs here that we breed here ai at the ranch and uh they breed basically you know every other day up here at the breeding barn and collect those studs and so there's a there's a big group of mares here that we hand breed and use oh whatever use the frozen semen do a little embryo transfer do all the, the little tricks we're not doing ICSI or anything else here yet, but uh, we're trying to maybe learn how. I don't know if we're going to do that or not. But, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so there's, there's uh, oh, seven of those studs out there that are doing just like the wild horses. You just The only cost we'll have in those is a preg test in the fall when we bring them in. So, and they have some good colts. They, you know, they, there's about a, the way I always say it is every time a, a human gets in the way of nature, you lose about 10% on your conception rate. Those pasture studs will run probably 85%, maybe a little better. And then the AI bunch up here that we're hand breeding and stuff, they'll run about maybe 75. Really? And you, you start using cooled semen and you're down there maybe in the 60s and then you start messing with, with uh, embryo transfers and stuff. And I, I don't know if you quite get 50 there even. You know, wow. I didn't just, know uh, it was that dramatic of a difference. Yeah. Uh, that's just the way it seems on a herd average. You know, it, anyone in one deal can be different. And and if you uh, throw a lot of money at it and put in a lot of that work, you can get a little more than that done. But it's there's a spot there of diminishing returns where you're spending more than you're going to get out of it. Um, I don't know. That, that seems to be kind of the way it is for us anyway. The national average is... Uh, the mares that are turned in on a stallion report as being bred versus the colts that actually get registered is is just a little over 50% on the national average. Really? Yeah, and we we uh, raise about 100,000, well, probably closer, I shouldn't say that. Probably about 90,000 colts get registered a year in the AQHA. Wow. I feel like I'm learning a lot today. Do you think um, that having your mares and your colts turned out like that does that does that help the colt in the long run as far as 
figuring out how to move in different terrains and stuff. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm sure that it, uh, they develop a, a balance and a way of moving and stuff. That's better. I mean, a stall race Colt's just going to struggle more. And, uh, it, it's, uh, Oh, I, I like like the the girls that become you know Olympic uh, go to the Olympics and the gymnastics. I mean, they start them when they're five years old, and they they learn balance and how to do all that, all those tumbles and all that kind of stuff. They don't start them when they're eighteen. True. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah, a good so comparison. If you really want your horse to be an athlete, you probably ought to get him in an athletic spot where he can do something. Just when he's playing and just being a colt. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I I feel like I've asked all the questions that I wanted to for the podcast. Um, if you need to uh, come up with more questions sometime or something, we'll call me. Okay. Well, thank you again for your time. You bet. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. That concludes my interview with Jim Brinkman. If you want to learn more about the Pitzer Ranch and what it's all about, you can head over to their website at pitzerranch.net. That's P-I-T-Z-E-R ranch.net. Also, to follow along with us and to put a face behind the name of everybody that we talk to, you can head over to our Instagram page. It's at cowboystories underscore podcast. And if you know somebody who would be a good fit for the podcast and would be willing to visit with us, send me an email nomination to cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.